step inside my living room Share a little talk By roads walked and lessons learned Keeping the flame of faith burning I wanna know where you've been What you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the height in the hat, put it all in the hat. Hello, and welcome back to Hat Radio. My name is Avram Rosenzweig, and this is episode 12. And I'm very uh, excited and honored that here with me is uh, my guest, Clive Caldwell. How are you, Clive? Avram, I'm well. Nice to be here with you. And it's nice to have you, Clive. Do you like your name, Clive Caldwell? It's a great name. I'm okay. I don't have a strong view either way uh, with it, but I'm okay with it. It's like versus Avram Rosenzweig. Like in the days of operators, no one ever said, I'm sorry. What is that again? Did they? Oh, yeah. I get lots of that. You do get that? Oh, yeah. Lots of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a type of name that one would make up, but it's it's a good, well, solid, Gentile is, name. There is Clive of India. Yes. Both of my parents were British, yeah. and my mother learned after she had named me that the, had she been born a boy, her parents were going to name her Clive. Is that right? That's true. And there was a and famous her, pilot, fighter pilot by the name of Cl Clive Caldwell. Was there? Yeah, I think that's right. Yes. You're correct. And my mother was actually born in Calcutta, and um, her father worked timber mine t timber mills yes. in india yes. as i used to say to her while he was doing bad things to the native populations oh don't be ridiculous well mother he was in his 30s he was british in india <laughs> who knows don't talk that way about zadie <laughs> <laughs> so clive i got it the original the, the 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 question that people always ask is why why clive why the name or why no, my no, life? We, we covered that already. What, why is Clive Caldwell your number 12 guest? Why is he on Hat Radio? So I'll tell you why. Have you thought about why? Do you wonder why I invited you? We know each other. We've had a friendship. Um, I've had a few things, interesting things in my life. Probably that. There you go. So the idea behind Hat Radio is to create an environment whereby our listeners can hear positivity, can hear inspirational stuff about life. I'm not interested in the gossip. I'm not interested in covering the bad things that are going on in the world. There's enough of that. And I am fascinated by people's stories. And your story really is a, a rich, hearty, robust one. I mean, I remember when I met you, do you remember where we met? I would have said we met at, um, no, I'm not sure where we met. I think we met at Lou and Renee's house. Renee's house, that's exactly where we were at. That's yeah. our dear friend. Renee, yep, Renee, Renee and Lou. Renee has passed away, and Lou, uh, thank God, is well, and he's yep. st still our friend. And uh, one of the things that came up in our discussion, that you were seated number one, I believe twice, in, uh, in squash in the world, right? You're an erudite fellow. You tell your story very well. You're very eclectic in nature. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, number one. Like you were number one well, in the world. Well, in fact, in terms of rankings, I the highest ranking I got to was two. But I won two 
World Hardball Squash Championship singles and one World Hardball Doubles Championship with a gentleman named Mo Khan, who was a very dear friend. And uh, so that's, I had a professional squash career. Um, I've had a, a lot of good fortune in my professional life. Uh, I was married and have three children. My my uh, my first wife passed away yes. 20 years ago. I mm-hmm. often say because of the stress of living with me, but uh, <laughs> I don't think I often. Well, you say bring that. humor to it. Oh, Good yeah, for you. Yeah, yeah. Well, hold on, hold on to your thoughts because I want to get to all that stuff. Uh-huh. So I say to you, Clive, you were you were seated number one, or you win the won the championship, seated number two, whatever it does doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah. You play with the Con Boys and the number. Everyone knows who they are if you know nothing about squash. And I said to you. What was it like to be the best at something in the world? You remember your response? No. Your, what do you think your response might have been? Um, if it were today, and I said that to you. You know, it was nice, but you're still, tomorrow's another day, and you right. got to do something else. Basically, that was your response. You said, you know, Avram, because you always call me Avram. You know, Avram, I, I never really thought about it. <laughs> And all these years, I've been thinking about your response. So I said, I have to bring this guy on my show. Because that response, to me, doesn't jive, at least with what occurs internally with me. If I were seated number one in the world, and most people I know, or two, most people whom I know, they strive to be good. They strive to be great. Most people know they'll never be number one. So I'm thinking, Clive, when you're up there, and you're getting the trophy and all these sponsors are going, ah, Mr. Caldwell, well done. We're so proud of you and you've brought so much prestige. Something must go through your head of, wow, I've really accomplished something. My grandfather, you know, worked in the mines or worked in, you know, in, in, you know, blue collar stuff. My father was a salesman and here I am. Well, I, I, you know, look, I suppose that's fair for you, Avram, but for me, um, you know, you never get to the finish line on anything. It's a never-ending day-to-day struggle, if you want to call it that. And um, and on top of it, the game I played, squash, is a pretty. It's a small game, yes. and so even from a business point of view, I think the the largest uh, winning I ever had was six thousand dollars u.s for a tournament for a tournament so it's pretty small potatoes so it's not like i was retiring from this but even today you know i i've had some business good fortune you've still got to get up every morning and get at it and um, a little bit of what you were describing hat radio and what you're trying the story you're trying to tell i'm a I'm a real believer in the positivity of life. I believe that in many, many ways, there's an awful lot of great things that have happened to humankind and the world. And although there's many who speak very ill of it, I take a different approach. So how do you feel when you wake up in the morning? I feel fine, depending I haven't been too bad the night before. You I pee have a, a lot during the night, right? Well, once or twice I'm up, sure. You, that was in a video that you did. <laughs> You said I pee twenty five times a night. You remember which video? No, I don't remember. When, the, that when one. you did the one on on your walk on the Camino, yeah, yeah, yeah. You said I wasn't going to sleep in one of those public places, right? Right. Because I snore and I pee twenty five times. Right. Right. <laughs> I do. Did too. you watch that video? Yeah, it was fantastic. It's it's. I don't know if you've ever seen that film. 
I saw the film, and I just saw another one about Christians who made that D- journey. Did you see well. the film The Way? Yes, I saw The Way. Oh, did you? Yes, I did. I, you know, the, I had never heard of this thing. And although I was raised a Protestant Christian, um, and it is a, I suppose, a Christian pilgrimage Very begun in, in 844, I didn't do it for any of those reasons. And uh, I saw that film, and I thought, I got to do that one day because cool. it was just so cool. Well, what? Again, we'll get back to okay. this. I think you are you ADD at all? Do you see yourself that way? Probably a little bit as uh, a younger I, man. I'd like to think at sixty-seven, it's a little bit less today, but uh, perhaps a little we're bit. We're small ADD, not big capital ADD. So, by the way, uh, you said the best thing about walking on that walk was that anyone who does the walk will ultimately be saved and go to heaven. I <laughs> I thought that was great. Oh yeah, there's two things. They're both from the Catholic Church. There's two things. Yes, I know. Number one. All of your sins are forgiven. Which is fantastic, All of your sins right? are forgiven. And number two, straight to heaven. There's no purgatory, no nothing, straight to heaven. I mean, what else can you ask for? I'm doing the walk and I'm a Jew. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I was surprised. It was not most of the people on the walk, and there were now today there are maybe a couple hundred thousand people that do it every year. Yeah all denominations and very few are doing it for religious reasons very very few i, I understand that it, yeah. it's called the the camino de the camino santiago. de santiago. santiago and again we're going to get to that in a second no problem. I, I need to cover a little bit of ground before, Please before we go there so so your father brian god bless him he's 97 years old your mom passed away 12 years ago. Yeah. You come from good stock, don't you? I mean, your father taught you about the game of squash. My father did teach me. Um, at 97, about three months ago, without him even knowing it, he had a heart attack. Yes. And uh, he wasn't feeling very well. He went to the hospital, and they said he had a heart attack by doing a blood test. So it wasn't like his heart was like, all of a sudden, I'm in trouble. I better get, get I have to go somewhere. So. And two days before he learned that, he had played tennis at 97. Amazing. My mother played tennis the day before she died. Did she? So I come from, you know, a family with uh, athletics and activity. They weren't, they didn't excel at sports, but they were very active. And as I just said to you, my father was active two days before he had a heart attack. Amazing. So I come from that background. And um, I've just been a part of that scene, and I learned how to play squash as a part my father taught me as a 10-year-old, 11-year-old. And what is very cool is that two years ago, the both of you played in the 11th annual U.S. Century Doubles Championship, where the combined weight, the combined now weight, the combined years of the partners, the father and son in this case, has to be over 100 years old. Has to be over 100. And you guys were 160. We were 160. And it was just a wonderful experience. And these, I've spent a huge amount of time in in New York and the United States in my life. Yes. So we went to clubs that I know extremely well, and my father would have never been. The host club was the University Club in Manhattan at 54th and 5th. I mean, it's right in the heart of the most valuable real estate in the world, or at least retail real estate. And then we played in a club that was two minutes away on Park Avenue. Mm-hmm. And it was just really fun to do it with him, and we had a wonderful time. I think that's so beautiful that you have that sort of relationship with your father so many years on. Such yep. a special thing, isn't it? It's nice. It's it is nice, nice, isn't it? Did you have that with your mother? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I did not come from, I came from, they're both very British, do as I say, not as I do. 
you know, it, it wasn't a gregarious, loving, you know, it was a British sort of uh, background. Um, but, but I have a sister who's uh, two years younger than I am. But it was a decent family home and good values. Loving. Loving, yep, yep. Did your parents talk to you? Did they know who you were? Were they introspective on any level? Or that was just not part of the generation? It wasn't part of the generation. No, it wasn't part of the generation. Um, And it would also be fair to say that I was a pretty independent person as a kid. From early on. From early on. A little bit pissy. (laughs) You know, a little bit pissy, a little bit angry. So there wasn't, it wasn't, when I'm 13 and 14, um, I'm not lovey-dovey, you know, whatever you want, mommy and daddy, that would be my pleasure to do it. That wasn't quite how it worked, so. What was pissy about you? Did you break into cars? No, I didn't do anything really bad like that. I just, I wasn't a very good student. I didn't really like school, and especially as a child and a parent, probably almost nothing more important than your child doing well in school and and so you know that wasn't a help and and i didn't really as a youngster really get the full understanding of the value of work in a life in a good life i think that uh you know i often i often think and i'll come to faith issues for you yes to start i often think that the really the most important thing and the most important objective in a life is to get to heaven. You do. I do. And I think that hard work is a big part of that. Mm. I think I think living a good life, being industrious, trying to do good things is a part of getting to heaven. Interesting because you don't, if I'm not mistaken, you don't believe in Jesus as the Savior. Correct. So what do you believe? I believe in the following. I describe myself firstly, I'm raised a Christian Protestant. I, I, uh, I consider myself a man of faith, mm-hmm. which means that I believe in a God and a higher power. I have come not to believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ, which I think by definition means I can't be a Christian if you don't believe in that guy. Correct. But I also don't think he's coming. I think you guys have got it wrong too. Okay. Nor do I think that Muhammad left the dome of the, the rock under the dome, went to heaven for the night and got the word of the Lord. Nah, I don't think I believe that either. Okay. But I do want you to know that this right hand has touched the rock. It has do, touched the rock. I, this, this hand has touched the rock. Um, I believe in the Judeo-Christian ethic and morality as espoused by the Old and the New Testaments, but I do not believe in the, the truth and the facts as expressed by the Old and the New Testaments. I, I don't necessarily believe that, but I may, that Moses wrote down the Ten Commandments. Yes. I don't believe he was standing on top of, uh, forget the mountain. Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, and actually had God yelling down, Moses, write these things down. That's not my Come sense. In Yiddish, yeah. But I, I think you can maybe make the case that if, if Mohammed, I'm sorry, Moses felt somewhat divine, that he was 
you could say that, that, that what was coming from him came from God. I just don't see that as as if there was actually somebody talking. Did to you him. drop Jesus at some point? Were you 14, 15? No, I don't know when it was, but it was a long time ago. I just, you know, I went to, in my later years, in as a kid, my I failed grade 10 at Lawrence Park. You actually failed? Failed grade 10 at Lawrence Park, and my parents sent me to Ridley College in St. Catharines. I know Ridley, yeah. You wouldn't call Ridley a religious school, but it was a Christian school where every morning and every evening it might be a 15-minute prayer before or after dinner or breakfast. Yes. And we would have theology class maybe once a week. And I remember my parents telling me that the, the, the minister who taught that class thought I was going to become a minister or a priest. Because you were so passionate. I was just curious. I, I just loved the subject. Well, I, you know, I've always thought, what is the meaning of life? What am I doing here? You're a naval Do geezer. I believe God in God? And and it's funny, my father, who would have taken me to Sunday school and that sort of thing as I grew up, is really a dyed-in-the-wool atheist. Oh, is he really? He is. So he was okay with the path that you took? Yes. I mean, I don't think he fully understands it, to be honest with you. And a lot of people don't because it's it's a little bit outside of the boundaries of how most people think about faith and God. But... I've just thought about it a lot, and I've come to this is where I'm comfortable. This is what I. This is my faith. And you're okay with all this? I'm okay with it all. What, what do your children believe? Well, that was. Um, that's one of my. Uh, I, I often like to say one of my great regrets. Yes. I married a Catholic girl, the girl I mentioned who passed away 20 years ago. Marianne. Marianne, and she was Catholic, and I. I didn't really want my children being raised Catholic. I didn't like the severity of Catholicism. And so really as a result, my children were never really raised religiously. Yes. And had I to do it again, even though I have struggles with Catholicism, I think I would have converted. And and I would have done so because as time has gone on, I think relationships are hard enough. The more similarities you have, the easier it is. It's never easy, but I just think it's easier. And I wish my children were raised in a more in a more religious environment to at least have that sensibilities pushed on them, and they can decide where to go. But when you haven't got it all the time coming at you, it's hard to reject or embrace it. So I feel the same way. I was brought up in a rabbinical home. Yep. And I rejected orthodoxy when I was 20, 21 years old. Yep. Um, and for years and years and years, I did my very best to enjoy life in a way that I hadn't before with women, with food, with going out into the world and not being held back by all those things that halacha, Jewish law, insists that you do in order to have a loftier and spiritual life. That didn't work for me. And plus, there was a lot of pressure being a, the only son of a rabbi. So what happened was I had my boy, Noah, God bless him. And quite frankly, I didn't know which way to take him. I really didn't. I mean, he's 12, so we have a long way to go, thank God. But uh, but I think I failed in some ways. So what did you do with uh, Noah? You know, I took him to synagogue, but it never worked for me. So we stopped going to these particular synagogues. We would try another one. That one didn't work for me. We'd stop going. We have a Friday night dinner every Friday night. I take him to my sister's, so he's exposed to religion on some level. His bar mitzvah is coming up. That's a bit of a struggle. Did he have a bris? 
Yeah, he had a brisk. So he did. you've done the core items. I have. I that have. are required to be really a Jew. Right? I have. I the have. bris is critically important. The circumcision. It's critically important. Are you circumcised? No, you're not. No. Um, and uh, and he's now having his bar mitzvah. So those are the critical elements as you're being raised as a boy. It's not the whole picture, though. It's not the whole picture. No. I understand, but no. I understand lots more. But those are very important parts. Clive, what was Marianne like? Lovely woman, um, American. Uh, she, we worked together, and Lorna, my my current wife, who my second wife, who has we've been married for twelve years, we worked together as well. Yes. So it's a it was a wonderful thing. She was a very active woman herself, avid tennis player, and. Uh, wonderful beautiful woman and a wonderfully positive attitude about life i uh i made a number of big financial bets that i wanted to do as a in business and she was always supportive she was and and i also played squash professionally and i was away 20 25 weekends a year i'd take the kids sometimes but she was just a very supportive wife was that hard on her that you weren't around I think so. I mean, she came with me, depending on the city. She wasn't going to Toledo, but she was going to New York, Boston, and uh, and Chicago. And uh, it was nice. She was how, a how did you woman. meet her? She was. She came uh, to Toronto from Rochester to uh, become a radiation technologist at oh. Princess Margaret. Her father died of cancer. I'm sorry. And she was um, working on weekends at a squash club. Oh, was she really? And that's how it started. Do, do you remember the first time you saw her? I do. What, what I was do. that all about? How was that? Just a beautiful woman. I just uh, was attracted to her right away, and she had a lovely demeanor about herself and a very, very strong-willed but very uh, beautiful woman. You miss her? Yeah, I do, but it's a long time ago. But you and, think about her every day? Uh, I don't. Do I think about her? Probably not every day, no. Um, but, you know, she's an absolutely part of my life for forever and my children and... She's all part of it. Were you good with women? Yeah, I mean, I I was not a bon vivant, mm. and I was never the type that took women easily. If I didn't think it was something that could go somewhere, I didn't want to be dating for six or 12 months when I really knew that this was going nowhere. Yes. But I've always been very comfortable with women and uh, and love them. Do you see yourself as being debonair? I see you as being debonair. I don't know about debonair, but I don't think of myself. I don't think I'm an ugly person. You're not. You're handsome. So, you know, debonair, that's a bit strong for me. But I'm, you know, I I think I present well and uh, I can speak fairly well, although I I tend to uh, use inappropriate language on occasion. I'll do my best not to today, Avram. But, oh, you know, uh, you can swear. I love the way you speak. <laughs> I was watching that video that you did about the walk, the Camino, and you would say things like, well, my very dear Brian, fr- friend Brian is here. Of course, he's very mean to me. <laughs> you always say shit like that, and I love when you say it. Well, what did you mean, by the way, when you said that about him? He's very mean to me. Well, I think, I don't know if it was Brian or it might have been Tim, Maybe it was Tim. And and Tim has been a very, very old friend from that we went to school together. Tim Griffin? Tim Griffin. Yeah. And uh, 
And, and so he had been very helpful on the Camino. He helped me raise, I think, I ended up doing, um, at the last second, somebody suggested I should do this for charity. Yes. I didn't really want to, because I wanted this to be a very quiet, personal thing. But then I realized that it's, it is such an opportunity. I'm involved with a program called Urban Squash Toronto up in Downsview Park. And Tim raised $25,000 in yeah. that effort for me. And we're very dear friends. And he was giving me a shot. And the shot, I think, was a, I spelt, um, I used the term Moors describing Muslims, which is the older term for them. I and that. I think I spelt it with two O's. And he chastised me. It was actually only one O. Well, that's what it was. It was so rude in front of everybody. He's but, pissing uh, me off right now. <laughs> so I, uh, oh, one of the things, too, that brought you to this show, and thank you for accepting, was your sense of, uh, of, familiarity with the people whom you know and love your friendship in the video that i watched of you explaining the camino walk to many of your clients people who belong to your clubs and your friends you consistently talked about people whom you had met along the way and when you did honestly clive it was as though you had known them for a long time and, and when I met you and then I re-met you and I met you again, I always felt as though it was you really enjoyed me. You were happy that I was there. Like you exude that. Do you know that? Friendship. That's a huge piece of you. Well, look, I'm, I, uh, I consider myself a people person. Yeah. Um, I have very positive feelings in general about people and about life. And, and I think as well, I was blessed with a pretty upbeat approach. I don't think I wake up in the morning and say, you've got to be upbeat today. I really think it's more God-given than anything. It's your DNA. And I think there is a huge amount of what our life is, is God-given. And, uh, and so I feel somewhat blessed in my own life. And I, a little bit as you describe it, I've had, although I've had a wonderful family life, I've had a wife that passed away. Two of my three children are disabled. Yes. Um, but they've all coped, and uh, and professionally, I've had a lot of good fortune, and it's all worked out relatively well. But it's still hard. This thing called life. Do you love life? It's hard. It's hard. Would you and, live to 150 or 200? Well, that would be my sensibility my sensibility but i suspect if i was doing so and i was not able to open my mouth for a hundred of those 200 years probably <laughs> you not. say screw this i eh? probably not <laughs> clive what, what happened to marianne uh, other than the stress of living with me she got ovarian cancer okay and what's interesting and i i have joked for years that it was the stress of living with me but my daughter found something out recently that made me realize that it wasn't the stress of living with me. And her doctor, my daughter's daughter, she's 36 now, um, she went looking for genetic problems. Yes. And I don't know if I've mentioned this to you, Avram, but she found them. And she found that she has um, a thing called BRCA1, which is actually quite prevalent in, in the Jewish community That's or correct. an element of the Jewish community. And so if you have BRCA1, you have an 80% chance of getting breast cancer and a 40% chance of getting ovarian cancer. 
So my daughter discovered this, and 15 months ago, um, in New York, where she lives, she had a double mastectomy and a rebuild, Mm -hmm. and she still has to take out her ovaries. But if you do that, you you have a better chance than normal women of not getting both of those cancers. How is she? She's great. How does she feel about losing her breasts? I don't think thrilled, but... She always had small ones, so she was happy to get some bigger ones. The trouble is, as she says, she can't feel them. So, so there's an upside little, to this. There's some upside. <laughs> okay, okay. And and she's been a remarkable young lady. Her, she was, uh, when she was three and a half, she fell out of a bed and became paralyzed in her legs. Oh yeah. And um, but she coped with it all, and um, she went to a really good girls' school in Toronto called Branksome Hall. Mm-hmm. And she was made head girl of the school. Now, as a good father, I used to tell her that it was basically they all felt sorry for her, so they decided to give this. <laughs> Did to you her. tell her that? Of course. I love that. Course. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and see, uh, some but, people might think you're a prick. Yeah, but but she's done well, <laughs> yes. and she's now an investment banker on Wall Street. And she she uh, she ended up at the end of her teenage years. She had five surgeries, big surgeries in the U.S to straighten her legs to avoid long-term chronic problems in her hips. Okay. And um, and so they, these surgeries were just incredible. And she only missed a year of uh, university while she was doing it. She has an MBA now, and she works for RBC. And incredible how? How were the surgeries incredible? Well, let me tell you the first surgery. Yeah. They cut her thigh bone in half just below the hip, and they with a laser, they twist it 60 degrees and then reattach it with a metal plate. Then the muscles are so spastic, like they really, really, you touch them. If you're like a knee thing with a doctor, you put a hammer in her knees, she kick your teeth out. They're just really spastic. So her knee wouldn't move. So they cut the quadricep muscle off of the knee and reattached it on the inside of the knee. Okay. Then they took the, they cut the tibia in half just above the ankle and shifted it 30 degrees and reattached it with a metal plate. And then they spent about three hours on her foot and shifted it to the right because it had all moved to the, to, to the right. They shifted it to the left. So it was about an eight hour surgery and that was surgery number one. She had five. How were you in the waiting room? It was tough, you know. You don't know. I'm on my own. Marianne has gone now. I'm I'm actually at this point. I'm not in the waiting room. Um, They were very good. The American, this hospital that we used, they called me every hour. Every they they calling you, updating me on the surgery, and I'm just sort of driving around. Maybe went back to the hotel where we were staying, and then came to see her when she got out. Did, Did you think negative thoughts when this is going on? Do you think the worst? No. No, I mean, you know, we became very friendly with the doctor. Wonderful man had been done this kind of surgery. So, there's, you know, there's always risks in a surgery, especially when somebody's being put out. But I'm not thinking that she's not going to survive this. It's never really crossed my mind. Okay. It's just a, it's a long day. It is a long day. Could you eat? Uh, maybe not. I don't remember exactly. Yeah, but yeah. I couldn't eat. Yeah. So, so Marianne got sick. How long was she sick for? Four years. And it's normal. Ovarian cancer, I think the normal time is 48 months from diagnosis to death. And I think she was 50 months. How was it that she lasted so long? 
Well, no, but it doesn't. But the forty-eight months is the norm, so she lasted fifty. So I don't think she was any longer than most. But she maintained an extremely active life. Um, she became during that time the president of the Toronto Cricket Club. She ran the Adelaide Club. That's amazing. And she just kept going. She just kept moving so forward. You knew, and she knew that she would pass. No, I don't think that's the case. I think it starts to dawn on you. She the the after two years it came back, and I think with all cancers that's generally a very bad sign. I didn't realize really when she got it how difficult ovarian cancer is to overcome. Yes, you generally get it later. It spreads in little seeds rather than in a big clump, so you don't feel it for a while. So I think she was, and I wouldn't have even known this about stages, but she was probably stage three when she was diagnosed. I didn't know it at the time. So it was only when it came back that I started to think this isn't uh, likely to have a happy ending. And, and how were you as a husband, as a man, as a human being going through this? You just keep moving forward. I mean, there's no, you know, it's even when she passes, you've just got to get on. You've just, there's no, you know, wailing away. I've got three kids I've got to deal with. I've got to keep this thing moving. Do you cry? Are you a crier? I'm not a big crier. Like when was the last time you to. cried? Let's say probably would have been a movie of some kind. Yeah, I cry at movies yeah. too. Do you remember yeah. which movie? No, I don't. Okay, I don't. So, so, were you in a situation when your wife was was dying? You know, a day left, two days left. Yeah. Were you there? Were you coddling her? Were you holding her? Were, were you well, there when she like her she last is breath? At the end, no. At the end, she's really out of it. She's not conscious. And morphine or what have you, yeah, exactly. right? Exactly. I mean, she's in, in uh, what's the care of when they fundamentally are trying to bring her life to a close yes. more quickly. Yes. Um, she's in that environment. She died at home, which was really a lovely thing. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm for sure touching her, but I'm not lying in bed for three hours with her in my arms she's she's unconscious really and she's as happened so often in these cancers she's just whittled away to nothing yes. you know you just it's not all cancers are that way but in her case you know i don't know how many how much she would have weighed but she would have been 125 or 130 pound woman and um, she could have been 60 70 pounds when she died and how were the kids while this was happening they were good. They were okay. They knew that it was coming. Mm -hmm. I think in time, you know, my, it's funny about life and how you treat it. My boys were going, one was going to Fanshawe College and one was going to um, uh, Brock. And both of them kind of, they lost it. They lost the plot. They ended up not going back to school and that was the end of their school. My daughter sort of missed a day where her, all of her friends stayed out of school for her. Did they? Yeah. And then she went back to school the next day. She looks at it now in a bit of a negative way, feeling that she didn't mourn in a way that would have been healthy for her. But to me, she just barely missed a beat and she just kept going. I kind of think that's a better way to go at life, to be well, honest with Well, you. I think there's many different ways of mourning. Yep. Uh, I've said this before on the show. My sister, Chavi, lost her husband. In fact, I interviewed her on their show. He was murdered. Wow. David Rosenzweig at Lawrence and Bathurst, 2002. You may remember, it was a big thing in the city. Yeah. And she couldn't uh, pray. And she's a religious woman. 
So somebody told her, a very wise person, it's nice when wise people come along, isn't it, Clive? And said, listen, there's many different ways of praying. One form of praying is through your tears. And that resonated with her. And she carried that forward. And so I agree with you. There's not one way of mourning. Your daughter may have mourned in a most healthy way. Yeah. For her. Yeah. You don't know. But, you know, one of the things for me about my God, my God is not pointing fingers at all seven billion of us and this is what's going to happen. That's not my God. Um, So I don't have any anger in my God as a result of her passing or the challenges that my children have had. It's just life and life only. And that's the way it goes. And that's the way it goes. And in general, even though she died at age 46, she really had a pretty full life. She had three children who she'd brought up to the late teens. She had a career. She had a million friends. She had a wonderful life. Now, she could have had another 40 or 50 years, but in the history of mankind, to have lived to 46 is a pretty full life. So, you know, I tend to think of it in those terms. And you don't feel victimized? No, I don't. In any way, at any level? Oh, what was me? Why did did this happen to Clive? No, not at all. My children might. My my, uh, eldest son was born with only two fingers on each hand, and he's missing his thigh, so he's very short. He works for you, right? He works for me. His name is Dylan. But he is a very vibrant, upbeat, man considering all that he's been dealt with yes i've met but again you just you know if you're not getting beaten over the back of the head with a two by four every day think of yourself lucky because (laughs) there's a lot of people being beaten over the back of the head with a two by four every day or who are starving yes so you know just even being born in the environment that we are in is already you're in the the top 10 percent at least and um, so I feel blessed to have had a life, and uh, yeah, that's beautiful. Do, do you ever have to protect Dylan from people's responses to him? No. Well, I mean, he might want it, but what's the point? I mean, he definitely, you know, he doesn't like being around children often. He's great with children, but they're often the ones that will say things that can be a bit, they just aren't uh, censured at all. They yeah. just say what they think. They do. Um, but. You know, he he doesn't like being out in public so much, but these are his choices. Um, So, you know, he does unbelievably well, and he's remarkably upbeat and outgoing to people. So, you know, and I have a third son named Devin, um, who we adopted at birth. He has two children and lives out in Oakville. He is a stay-at-home dad. His wife is in the hospitality world. He's got two wonderful daughters, and uh, everybody's getting along relatively well. He's a good kid. He's a He's good a guy. He's a good kid, yeah. And you're close with him? I am. Just had lunch with him before I came to see you. So, so fatherhood is a big deal for you? Yeah. You work on it? Well, fatherhood family is very important to me, and I'm a believer in it. I'm a believer in the family unit. Um, you know, it's not easy. And, you know, 
living with women, they're a very difficult group. Everyone knows they're crazy. It's not our fault. It's never our fault, for goodness sakes. That's true. Yeah. I'd have to agree with you on that one. Thank you. We can stop the show right here. Let me ask you a question. Here's another one, though. I'm going to give you another one. I like to say that. Another piece of wisdom? Here's another piece of wisdom. Okay, can't wait. As I understand the Judeo-Christian ethic and morality, yes, I believe that women are going to heaven before men. And why is that? Because I think they live, in terms of that Judeo-Christian ethic and morality, I think they live better lives. I think we are much more selfish about how we're doing it. They are much more nurturing and caring about their fellow man. And everything that I understand about how to live a life as described by the Judeo-Christian ethic and morality, I think women live better lives than we do. Okay. That's my sensibility. Okay. Now, there's been recent, you may have seen something recently by an American psychological association saying that boys are bad, all of our behaviors, our aggressiveness, our independence, we can do it alone, is all wrong. But I don't agree with that either. I don't either. Uh, it's ridiculous. It and is. I think that what has happened in the world in the last 10,000 years has been, although both men and women have been a critical part of it, a lot of what has happened has been men-driven. Mm-hmm. And yes, we've gone and fought a lot of wars, but these buildings, one of my favorites is central heating. You know, we didn't have central heating until the last 100 years, and that's a massive breakthrough. It's a big piece. It's a big deal. It is. So I think mankind, men, have done a lot of very, very good things, and uh, but we're we're not we're hated actually these days. People don't like us. Well, it's a tough time. <laughs> by the way, I, I'm fascinated by the little nuances in life. I love nuances. When I see something going on that nobody else has seen, right away I register in my head. Let's say I'm over at Metro doing some shopping, and I'll see a person open the door for an older woman and walk her out and carry her bags and smile at her, and make a joke. I love those moments, and yep. I write them down because to me, there's like a billion of them happening in the course of a day, yep. and that's what makes up life, right? Um, so I, I, I enjoy your, I enjoy the little nuances that you pick up on as well. I must tell you, you're a nuance guy. Do you realize that about yourself? You you see the little things going on, mm-hmm. right? Like so, you mentioned central heating. <laughs> Who the hell would say? <laughs> I had a person on here. Her name was Kitty Cohen. She was 106 years old. Two weeks after I interviewed her, Clive, she passed away. Mm-hmm. So I thought, wow, what a legacy, you know, this show was for her. Yeah. So she said one of the greatest inventions that she had ever seen w- was the turn uh, signal on a car. So you didn't have to stick your arm out the window. And I thought, that is freaking amazing. I just love that. <laughs> yeah. So so Clive, so you're you teach squash at a club downtown, yep. right? The Cambridge Club. Yeah. And you take you, you buy a little bit of a piece in the Adelaide Club. And these are sort of higher end clubs, right? Yeah. And all of a sudden, as time goes on, you're no longer just a teacher, you're an entrepreneur. Yep. Were those good days? Um yeah, absolutely. I mean, I um, I think I've thought quite a bit about what it is in my soul that has allowed some of this good fortune to occur. So I think, number one, I have always thought about my entire life from a very early age. Yes. 
So I was already thinking at 14 and 15, I hate school. It's, that's not going very well. How am I going to earn a living? And how am I going to have the living like I've grown up in? And I realized very early that I could be a club squash professional. And the guy who taught me how to play squash at the Toronto Cricket Club, very close to here, Avram, uh, Jim Bentley was his name, made the same amount of money my father made. So number one, I'm thinking at a very early age about what my career is going to look like. I'm already thinking that way, 14, 15. And how much cash you're going to make. And how much money I'm going to make. Then I get this job as a club squash professional, and I'm making $20,000 a year, and I'm thinking, how the hell am I going to retire? How am I going to do that? Well, I mean, you, well, you're I save it. This is 73, 74. I can, if I'm saving $1,000 a year, this is going to be a lot of savings <laughs> and a lot of years where I'm going to have anything to retire on. So I started asking people about what I should do with the money I was making. And I started to buy some real estate. So I, I sort of realized that's sort of almost the beginning of my entrepreneur. I'm just thinking about my career and I'm thinking about money and I'm trying to figure out and I think that's sort of the beginnings of it. I, I then am given an opportunity. It wasn't the Adelaide Club, but I was given an opportunity to buy 5% of the Cambridge Club. Yes. And and I did that, and and then we built the Adelaide, built another, and that 5% kept going. And then the partnership blew up. The two principal guys didn't love each other anymore, and we had a partnership agreement that allowed one of the partners, including myself, I'd wanted to, to trigger a buy-sell. Yeah. You put a price out there, you got 60 days to respond, you can buy or sell at the price that this guy What's that did called? it. What's that clause called? Um, well, it is a buy-sell clause, I think. It's a, it, what, what else would it Anyways, be called? Anyways, there's a name for it, go there's ahead. There's a name for it. And um, so I then made the decision to sell everything except the Adelaide Club. Yeah. And one of the big things that I decided was that I had 5% of it, I had an opportunity to buy another 30. And the club wasn't making any money, but I thought that I could make it work. So I got my wife to sell our real estate homes and rent for a number of years so that we could take that money and put it into the buying of the business or buying a, a much bigger piece. Fantastic. So that was a, another big step. And again, to, in my wife's credit, she agreed. She agreed. She agreed. Were you, and, you afraid know, at all? You know, Avram, the reason that I felt that it was the right thing to do, the Adelaide Club is situated in the lower level of First Canadian Place, yeah. a 72-story office tower. It is still probably the most central building in the country of, of people around it. And so I just felt that it's got such an incredible location. Somehow I've got to be able to figure this out. It's got to go. It's got to. I got to be able to figure this out. So, I, I wasn't really afraid. It just felt like it was doable. So, so, so you ultimately ended up owning um, the Toronto Athletic Club. Yeah. The Adelaide Club. My largest group at one time. I had six clubs. You had six clubs. I had six. Clubs, How did you run six and clubs? I now have three. How did you run six clubs? Well, you Did hire you go back and forth. And... No, because I'm not running them. I mean, I'm trying to establish a culture and, a, and an approach. But you've got somebody, a general manager, and I you always refer to them as the CEO of the business. They're running the clubs every day. You let them do their thing. Absolutely. Are you a good boss? Well, you'd have to ask them. But I, I'd like to think I leave people alone. I think I'm a pretty good boss. We we have one of the things that I'm proudest of in my business affairs 
is that I've had people working with us for a long time and in the fitness business that's very rare. Yes. But I have a lot of people that have been with us for decades. So, you know, I a lot of love to go around and you try to pay people well and do you get angry try. very often? Um, I, I don't yell at people too much. If I am, it's generally in fun. I, I for sure can become angry, but I don't lose my cool and I don't I don't do anything like that. Like well, uh, where I might get angry, it would be on a golf course. But as my wife and children would say, I just get dark. <laughs> you do? Do you? There's not like a lot somber? coming out. Very somber. Did you close down? A little down? depressed. You don't, you don't talk? <laughs> I don't talk. Do you ever throw like your putter? No, I'm the... not doing stuff like You're that. You're not a thrower. I'm not a thrower. But I might have been as a 12-year-old. And one of my favorite things in golf was a story from Jack Nicholas. I've never seen a guy become a great golfer that at some point in his childhood, the golf clubs weren't going all over the course. You've got to care. And I think in life, caring is a critically important part of life. Right, right, right. right. So I want to go back to a question that I asked originally about feelings. Mm-hmm. You, you say you're a feeling guy. You're in touch with your feelings. Yeah, I'm in touch with what I think and what I feel. Absolutely. I think you are. Um, so you own some pretty prestigious places right mm-hmm. and you're seen yep. you're seen as such do you ever lie down at night put your head on the pillow and say clive way to go man like this is great what you've done like are you proud of owning these places are you are you proud of yourself you know i think i've had a lot of good fortune in my life um yeah i i'm you know I, I don't do what you're saying thing, oh, well done, Clive. You don't do that. No, but, you know, if asked, I, I think I've had a good life. I've tried to do good things for people, for my family. Um, I, I feel blessed. Um, and, and I feel that I've I've conducted myself relatively well in, in my life. And... Uh, that would be, I guess, my answer for you, Avram. So, so if you left this world tomorrow, mm-hmm. God, God forbid, yeah, would you be lying there on your bed your last minute, you know, and say, okay, job well done, job well done? Yeah, I think so. You would. I, I feel, you know, I do feel when I use terms of heaven and, and God, um, it's not a guy with a white beard. It, it ain't a place that I'm going to and we're all going to sit around singing Kumbaya. Or learning the Talmud. Um, but I do believe, as we were saying earlier, that doing the good things, the right things in life, as described just by the Ten Commandments, yes. um, I, I think you should feel proud of yourself that you're doing things. And, and I think out of even the, the Jewish traditions and what you're supposed to be doing, and I often think the Catholic traditions, discipline and focus and I think those are all important things in a life, mm-hmm. to be honest with mm-hmm. you. And I think that life is also very hard. It's not easy. And if you can just keep your head down and still keep getting up every morning and working hard and trying to do good things for other people, you should feel proud. And so I have a bit of that. But I'm also, I drink too much. I love having wine. How much do you drink? I don't know. I, but I love sure have a couple of glasses of wine every well, night. What kind of wine do you like? I like all kinds. Red, of, white. I like it all. Rosé. I'm more of a red guy than a white guy, but I'm. I like it all. What do you think about Ontario wines? 
I'm I'm less enthusiastic about Ontario still, wines. Still, still. But it's better. It's getting better. It's better. Yes. It's what, better, but not too many of the reds. And the reds that are any good, they cost you a fortune. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you like Israeli wines? I've never had it, I don't think, an you Israeli don't, you wine. You never bring an Israeli wine so. into your club? No, I don't think so. Okay, okay. So just about your club, just a couple more minutes on this. You, One of the things that you've taken a lot of pride in is the aesthetics yeah. of it. First, you walk into your club. You've had me for lunch. Yeah. You've had my very dear friend, Vac. And I have to tell you something. You're, you're a good man. You really do take care of people. You really do. And I want to thank you so much for that. So we're looking at your walls. And you have all these Canadiana sort of pictures on the wall of the Joe Olivers of the world. You have both men and women, even though it's just a men's club, yeah. right? Right. Yeah. Which is very eclectic of you. Um, Pamela Anderson, well done. Nicely thought out. Leonard Cohen, Rob Ford. Rob Ford in a picture and a, a, uh, a cartoon. Saying I don't inhale, right? By, saying I don't inhale by Andy Donato. And Andy Donato is a friend, a golfing friend from the Toronto Hunt. And I wanted to put a Donato up. I think he's a he's an iconic Canadian. He's been doing this for 40 yeah, years. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And so he gave me access to what he had, and I selected that, and he gave it to me very generously. Did he just give it to you? He just gave it to me, and I put it up in the club. Ken Thompson? Ken Thompson, so who was a member of the club. And the story is told he died right before coming to work just out. Just before coming to work out. He came over the club all the time. What, what sort of fellow was he? He was very lovely man. He really was, and and tried to just do his best to just live a normal life, even though he was worth, I think, at the time, twenty nine billion. Like huge. <laughs> like, come on, give me some money for God's give sake. Give me some. I give want me some, some of, of it. That's Don't what I'm so thinking mean. too. I want some of your money. So let me ask you something. Are you intimidated by any of these people? Um, it, it would be fair to say I'm not. And I, I remember in my early years when I'm teaching these people, two things. One, they're pretty intense, most of them. And I remember it as a kid, or I'm 21, 22, 23, teaching these people. I am staying focused on their eyes. I'm not going to get, I'm not moving away. You're not going to intimidate me. I'm doing this. The other thing that I've said to so many people since then, and even some of the people that start working with us. Yes. I'm a child of the 60s, mm-hmm. peace, love, and understanding. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was all about humanity and be decent people. That's what the, the I often think about. How old are you again, Avram? Yeah, I'm 58. 58. So not quite there, but a little bit. Yeah. And I sure expected these were all going to be a very difficult group of people. And I was amazed six months in. How nice I all thought I thought they all were. Were they? They were nice. And I thought, well, maybe they were real dicks on the way up, and they got to the top, and now they're nice people. Yeah. Nobody wants dicks running their companies and doing that. <laughs> so I, I was I was amazed, really, as time went on, just what decent folks they were. Yes, I see them in a relaxed environment. I'm sure they're not all so sweet and kind, but they're all they're all well educated. They're all hardworking, yeah, yeah. and they're all trying to do well by their families. And so, I was a little surprised that Gordon Lightfoot w- works out. Yeah, he's there. Thirty years he's been at your club. Oh, almost 35, 40 years. Is he uh, in shape? He's in shape. I mean, he had, as you remember, ten or fifteen years ago, he had a a, mm-hmm. a stomach hemorrhage, and was I think put under 
um, under a coma, but a medically induced coma for a couple of months to help him recover. Yes. And he would say that it was because of the Cambridge Club that he was able to recover as well as he did. He's a he's a workout guy. Do you, do you go visit them at the hospital? I didn't visit him. I didn't know him that well. I know him quite well now. And um, and we just as a result of friendship, I asked him to Lorna's and my wedding. And our first dance was going to be to his song, Beautiful. Yes. And I asked some friends to go and get him and make sure that he saw us doing our first dance at Beautiful. And the friend came back and says, well, goodness, he brought his guitar. It's in the trunk of his car. He thought he might play a couple <laughs> of songs. I said, well, that could work. <laughs> yeah, I don't mind. <laughs> that could work. I don't mind at all. And it was really special. You have some maps up there, interesting maps that show Quebec. Yep. Uh, Alberta and a couple of other provinces, half their real size. I like that. Absolutely. That's kind of cool. I bought that in a map store in London, England, and it showed Canada at like 1890 or something and what it looked like. That's fantastic. It's very cool. Are men different in a club when there are no women around? Because you have a fellow here, Don Givellos. Don Givellos. Givellos. He says uh, uh, at these clubs, i.e. yours, a man could be a man and say what he wants. Well... You know, it, there's no doubt it's a slightly different. It's it's very much a boys club. Yes. But, you know, they're still being gentlemen all the time. And um, it, it's a very peculiar thing. I mean, men's clubs barely exist anymore. Right. And But we've come through it, uh, all the issues, and uh, it's a fun place. But the Adelaide Club is co-ed w- with a very special women's only gym. Oh. Oh. So there's an area where just the, where the women can go. Okay. And then the Toronto Athletic Club is co-ed as well. But, you know, we're really trying to create an environment where it's not just a gym, but it's a club. Okay. You make friends, you have a beer after you work out, lunch together, that sort of thing. Here at the Jewish Community Center, you go into the men's club um, and, and you'll see old guys there, you know, having herring and scotch. Could I have herring and scotch at your club? Uh, I don't know about herring, but you could sure have scotch. Well, why not sure. herring? I is just that, don't think a, is we that have... an anti-Semitic thing? Or... You're so rude. <laughs> so rude. Uh, no, I'm, we, I'm just don't, we just don't have herring on the on the menu. But would you? Yeah, we would if it was something that members wanted. So You know, it's really one of the special things about the Cambridge Club, Avram. I, I grew up, as I said to you, right in this neighborhood. But I don't know anything about Jews and Gentiles. I don't know why I ended up actually asking my mother once yes. why I never knew. Yes. And she had an interesting answer for it. And the answer was that her grandparents, who really raised her more than her parents, just had the most horrible things to say about all sorts of peoples from different ethnic backgrounds. But they were equal about it. But, but negative. Negative. And her mother, her, she said to me, I was determined to never say anything like that about any community of people. Okay. So I knew nothing about it. The Cambridge Club, which started when I started working at it, has always had a significant part of the Jewish population, has been part of that club. And as you would probably know, most clubs have separations, Mm -hmm. less today than they might have had 30 or 40 years ago, but groups tended to stay religiously or ethnically. So my involvement with the Jewish community has come out of the Cambridge Club. It has been really one of the most special things for me in my life. Has it? Yeah, it really has. Uh, How so? Well, because 
as I like to say, you're an amazing group of people. For some reason, everybody seems to hate you. Yeah, yeah, we're a bunch hated. But but you're an incredible group of people. Well, why I mean, do you think we're hated, Clive? I've thought about that a lot. I know you have. And I've come to the view that it's the Catholics. So, and when I say the Catholics, there's nothing in Christianity but Catholicism until the 15th or 16th century. You, you've got the, the beginning of, of uh, the Church of England. That's the first time there's, a, there's another Christian approach. Mm-hmm. And at around the same time is Luther and the beginning of Lutherism, which was also a, pro, a pro, protest movement. But I think that the Catholics taught for, for centuries that it was the Jews that killed Christ. Yeah. And, you know, you, I, I don't know that, that in talking to many people about it, number one, what, 14th, 15th century, Jews can't own land in Europe. Right. What the hell is that? Right. And, 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 and I think there's a period, and you may know this much better than I, there's a period in like the third century. I can't remember this guy's name, but I think he's a Roman emperor or something that he starts the he's the guy that really brings Christianity to the fore. Mm-hmm. And that again, that the Jews killed Christ. So when I grow up, I don't know anything about that stuff. In my world, Pontius Pilate killed Christ, and he asked the the Romans, are you thumbs down? And so there was nothing Jewish in that. But I've just come to the view that that wasn't really what was taught for centuries. Yeah. And that's why. Ugh. And then the other thing for me is, you know, you've accomplished so much. It, it's really quite remarkable what the Jewish community have done. And there's not many of you. No. I often ask people, how many do you think there are? Yeah. And people will go, oh, four or 500 million or right. 200 million. No, 13, 14, 15 million. That's it. Correct. So the, the, the tone of the animosity or the anti-Semitism and all the, the bad stuff that the Jews have done, it's just not true. Well, you know what a righteous Gentile is? Do you? Not really. Okay, a righteous Gentile is it's a title that's been given to non-Jews who rescued Jews during the war. So if you go to Yad Vashem in Israel, have you been yeah, in Israel? I have. Oh, you, are you? I told you this hand has touched the rock. Oh, yeah, that's right. You must have loved Israel. It was incredible. I was well, only there you, for three days. Are you going to go back? I, I would love to. It's an amazing Speak place. to me before you go. Yeah. So so anyway, so righteous Gentiles are in Yad Vashem, which is a memorial for, for the Holocaust. And uh, there's a few hundred of them who saved Jewish lives at the risk of their own life and, of course, at the risk of their own children's lives. Do you think you would be a righteous Gentile? Well, I would hope so, but I often think to exactly what you're talking about, and I've said this for decades, I think one of the toughest things in life is when Anne Frank's father comes to you and knocks on your door and says, would you please protect us? Yes. That is one tough, and you don't know what you're doing until that moment arrives. Yes. You can say that is the right way to behave and you're to be a good person. Boy, boy, that's a tough one. Agreed. That's a tough one. Agreed. And and it's the right thing to do, but you never know what you're going to do at that moment. I so know. when you ask me, would I be a righteous Gentile? I would hope so, but I don't think you know until that moment. Uh, have arrives. you ever done anything at your own personal risk for somebody else? Nothing comes to mind. Me neither. Nothing that comes well, to I mind. Well, I say I got in the middle of a few fights and things like that, but. Yeah, I know what you mean, because I have a son whom I'll take a bullet for, but to put his life in peril for someone whom I don't know, I don't know. I don't know if I'd be a righteous Jew. 
Uh, all right, so let's before I get into the walk, okay? Camino de Santiago. I wanted to ask you. Let's see how hands are you are, how hands on you are about your club. Tell me, uh, tell me three things that you serve for breakfast at your club, the Cambridge Club, okay? Three things and how much they are, how much they cost. Smoothies. Okay, smoothies. How much smoothies. are they? How much are they? I don't know. No, Seven ninety-five. You, know you don't sit with your chef. Seven ninety-five. I don't know. We have a food and beverage manager. You're so rude. Um, um, okay. What else? What else? We have uh, eggs Benedict. Okay. Good. Good. Um, and uh, scrambled eggs. Right. Do you like that stuff? Do you eat that stuff? I do. I love that stuff. Do, do you eat meat? My uh, my two breakfasts. I have two breakfasts. Okay. I have two boiled eggs. I like boiled eggs. With an English muffin and <laughs> right. peanut butter. Ah, very nice. Two boiled eggs. And my other one is, I love lox and bagels, but the problem with bagels is there's too much. I'm a diabetic as well. Yes. And so I love to have an English muffin with lox and, and, and onion and and cream cheese that's my other one that's my those are my two breakfasts of choice by the way that's a form of conversion to judaism <laughs> so listen i don't understand i'm this really thing. a good jew here's the other thing you, i don't know if you, i said this you to are you. by his most I, I i didn't is that again in my learnings of your community i learned of shivas shivas not shivas but shivas and i uh, and i thought what a wonderful thing and i gather that in modern times they've changed a little bit but that the core notion of a shiva is that for a week your friends and an immediate family are going to take care of the immediate family who have suffered the loss correct and that you really not supposed to shave or you do nothing you just get taken care of and people bring food and drink and it's a week. It's become a little bit more of a party that the people that have lost someone have to host. Yes. But I always thought it was a wonderful thing. So I, with the help of two friends, one who was Jewish in his past, Marty Richmond, and Tom Mahalik, who everyone thinks is Jewish but is not and runs Tom's place oh, and down in yeah, Kensington he's a lovely Market. Guy. I love Tommy and I love Marty. Very generous of spirit, by the way, Tom. He is very, very generous, generous of spirit. So they helped me, and I and I announced at the at the funeral that we were going to have a Christian shiva, <laughs> and please drop by the home. And so from Friday till Sunday, people just dropped by the home. There was nothing religious about it. We didn't do prayers or anything like that. Uh, but I, uh, uh, you know, I, I I I have a great feeling of community with the Jewish community. So, and, so you'll uh, take a little from here, a little from there, a little from there. Okay, you got it. Well, that's you good. You're it. eclectic in nature. It seems to work for you. So it works for me. The Camino de Santiago. Yes. It's an 820 kilometer walk. Correct. Okay. And about 250,000 people do this walk every year, which starts in France and Correct. it ends up in Spain, essentially where a saint was buried. Correct. Okay. Here's the drill. Here's yeah, the drill. Go ahead. Here's what the Camino is. It's actually from all over Europe. I could actually show you a map of all Europe and there are trails, but the main trail is called the French Way and it starts in a tiny town in the Pyrenees in France in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port. Saint yes. The hardest day is the first day and you walk over the over the Pyrenees into Ronson's Valles, which is now Spain, and you walk across Spain. It began in 844 A.D., 
And St. James was one of the 12 disciples. After the death of Christ, he apparently goes to Iberia, which is Spain at the time, to, to preach to the pagans. He doesn't do very well, and so he goes back to Jerusalem, at which time in 44 AD, King Herod cuts his head off. He cuts his head off, yeah. And, and his followers grab his remains, take them back to Iberia, and bury them. Correct. In 844 AD, a shepherd finds these remains, and a priest says, oh, St. James, for sure that's St. James. That's him. We, let's build a chapel here, and let's start bringing people to pay, pay, pay honor to St. James. A pilgrimage. A pilgrimage. That's what I said to you before. If you do that, we promise you free access to heaven. That's nice. And all your, all your sins are forgiven. I like that. But the other element that was happening is that the Moors had now started to become a dominant force. The Muslims become a dominant force in Spain. So it was also a political move that started then to bring these Christians in and start to force the Muslims out. Yes. which ended up happening hundreds of years, or not out, but the Christians became the dominant force. So there was a political message in my mind about it, although that wasn't really spoken to in some of the the uh, the background of how the Camino starts. So that's how it starts. So, so it's a beautiful walk. It's challenging as one could imagine an 820-kilometer walk would be. You actually did an extra 100 kilometers to go yep. to the end I of the to earth. I went to finish there, right? We'll talk about that in a minute. And is there some? There's so many Christians edifices along the road. Um, at me as a Jew, if I were walking, would it be inspirational because it's so beautiful? Because so many people are doing it, or is the Christian factor like a huge piece? Uh, you know, I said this to you before. I was surprised how many people were not there for religious reasons at all. Yeah. I've now forgotten his name, but I had a lovely couple of days walking with a Jewish friend from Toronto. I just met him out there. We ended up having lunch when I got back. And um, so he did it for no other reason. He wanted to do the walk. And it was a funny moment, and I said this to him, and I said it in my, my, uh, my blogs that I did. When, when I go to a Catholic church, and at the end of every day on the Camino is a pilgrim's mass, yes, and they speak in different languages, and and you come, and as I I always go up whenever I go to a a mass, a Catholic mass, or a, I always go. I never get the the sacrament, you know, getting the wine or the bread, um, because I think that would be disrespectful because I don't believe. Okay, but I always go up and get a blessing cross your hands i clearly i don't want the priest to think that i want anything but i get a blessing i've done that too by the way i ran into him as i was going up to get the blessing and i regret to this day that i didn't ask him to join me and he would have I, when i spoke to him afterwards about it he would have joined me yeah you say that in your video he said yeah. i would have come up yeah yeah so uh so lots of religion so uh, you know to your your question avram it, it's not religious but you probably wouldn't find a lot of of synagogues out on the route i don't know um, but lots of churches but you know i didn't go to many churches as where you know stick your head in but uh, you know i wasn't going from church to church and getting blessings and it, it's not that religious and for me it was a as I've said to many people, it was a time sort of to con I've been contemplating my navel all of my life. I was coming to the last third. I thought it was a good time to just reconnect. 
were you quiet a lot? Were you introspective? Yeah, were you, quite were a you bit. Thinking a lot. What were you thinking about? But I, but you know, I, I, I didn't take music. I didn't want music. I wanted that quiet. But, but you're connecting with people. Lots of conversations, talking to people, and I'm just as you've heard me say, I, I I've thought a lot about God and life, and so I wasn't looking for revelations. As I said in the in the video, I thought maybe since Moses got talked to by God, I thought maybe Moses might talk to me, and then my friends so graciously would say, "Well, but Clive, you're not any Moses, for goodness sake." <laughs> I, know, I, know, fair, I love that. Fair point. I know because <laughs> sometimes we think we are <laughs> right. We think we are more. Maybe I'm Jesus, right? So you're walking along now. Are there times where you say, "Okay, you know what? Today, my 34, my 35, my 40 o'clock, I'm going to walk by myself." Oh yeah, a lot of the time I'm walking by myself. How, how were those days? Good. Good. You're just moving along, thinking, moving. You know, the biggest thing of all I say to people, it was a lot of work. I imagine. You know, you're walking 20, 25, 30, 35 kilometers. I got 25 pounds on my back. Yeah. Every day, it's a lot of work. And you got to get up in the morning and do it again. There's no yeah. point just sitting there because yeah. you're going to have to do it the next day. So it's a lot of work. So this is what I'm thinking. You put your head down on the pillow at night. You stayed in some nice places, right? Not really nice places, but I, I decided there are things called albergues, which are big dorms with maybe sometimes 20 people in a room, sometimes hundreds, generally in double bunks. I decided I wasn't going to do that. Because you, you know, snore. I snore, and I just wanted to get a decent night's sleep. So I'm paying, in most cases, 35 to 40 euros a night. The albergues might be 8 or 10. And and so they're not really, really nice, but they're decent. They've got a bathroom in them, and often it might include breakfast. Clive, how does it work? You mentioned in, in your video that you did about this walk that farmers would come pick you up take you to their farm well there might be a few places sure where you are you've booked a place i've got a book with me that somebody gave me that has got every day where you where you should stop places so i'm i'm actually making phone calls that day to places that are in the book that you could get a place to stay and so a few times they're a little bit off the beaten track you meet them in that town they come and pick you up and take you back and you spend the night and then they deliver you back to the town the next morning and off you go oh uh, you must be a lovely guest <laughs> you are because you're so cheery around people i'm, a cheery I'm sure you'd ask them about their pictures on the windowsill and fair point like, i know you would i know you would so um so you don't complain either like i watched this movie about 10 christians or so 11 who walked this walk and they were consistently saying, I can't do this anymore. And my friends pushed me along and I was able to succeed. But I got none of that from you. Or, or did you complain and you just didn't say it in the video? Or did you just not feel as though I, I can't do this anymore? No, I never got to that. I mean, for me, you know, it was one of the great experiences of my life. Was it? It was one of the great experiences of my life. As a result of the fundraising, there was a lot of people that knew I was doing it. So the idea of stopping, and that was not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Unless I absolutely could not carry on. <laughs> I just had to. And um, 
as I said, it was one of the great experiences of my life and one that I, I don't know that I'll do the whole thing again, but I'm desperate to go back. With I your really daughter. Want to You're do doing it. it with your daughter. I'd like to do it with my daughter. I'd like to do it with my son. Maybe Again, it wouldn't be the whole thing, but both of them, in my view, could walk the 100 kilometers. And if you do walk 100 kilometers, you get the Compostela, which confirms that you've done it. It's written in Latin, and they've been giving it to pilgrims for 1,200 years. You're proud of it? I'm proud of it. Where did you put it? It's in my office. Yeah, yeah. You got tendonitis, didn't you, along the way? I did get tendonitis along the way. I thought I'd broken it. It saying. was so painful. But I went to, they have a lot of clinics along the way. There's a real infrastructure built up to help pilgrims. And um, I, they gave me uh, ibuprofen, and I was fine. Next day off I went. So I was thinking, the walk finishes. Yeah. It's about 820 kilometers uh, our dear friend Clive Caldwell says to himself, you know what? I can walk another 100 kilometers to what's called the end of the earth, Finisterre. 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 Which people used to think was actually the end of the earth. Well, that's what it was. Finisterre is end of earth. Is that of earth? Finish of earth. So I'm thinking to myself, Clive, I'm thinking to myself, yes, you're more of a human being than you are a religious sort. Why? Because you wanted to go to see the ocean. Usually what happens is people end at a church and they go in and they see the incense swinging back and forth. Right. But you wanted to go to the ocean. Is what I'm saying jiving at all? It's not quite accurate. Okay. What happened was a gentleman, I think it was Rocco Rossi who did it. He ran for mayor and he's done the Camino a lot. One of them said to me, don't do the first section don't go walk over the pyrenees it's exhausting and some people it's so hard they don't go any further but the last hundred kilometers is beautiful to that's what you should do so i thought okay i'll I'll, i sort of committed to doing that and then another friend said you are a suck if you don't work the first part so all of a sudden i found myself in a situation that uh, i've committed now i'm going to do both so That was more what it was rather than getting it to the end and going, well, I'm going to walk another hundred. That wasn't really what it was. Did you put your foot in the ocean? Um, I did put my foot in the ocean. Um, and, and really there is, when you get to Finisterre, there is a big lighthouse. People come there as sort of the very, very finish. And you watch a sunset and uh, it's quite a majestic place. Was it nice? How long did you just sit and look out the expanse? Yeah. yeah. And once the sun had gone down. What did you think? What were you thinking? Do you remember? No. You know, on many of these occasions, when you get to places, you see people you haven't seen for weeks. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there was, again, a, a real community of people that I hadn't seen. And as I said, I think you read some of my blogs. When I got to Santiago, it was one of the most emotional days of my life. Yes. It was completing this this effort that had taken me so long. It was seeing people that you're just you're you're all walking, you're all going to the same place. And you might have seen somebody 3 weeks ago and haven't seen them since, but all of a sudden you get to Santiago. It was a very uh, it was a very emotional day. Did you day cry for then? Me. I welled up, I think would be fair to say. Yes. Do you wish you cried more? Not really. Yeah, you know, okay. Because really. I don't I, cry a lot, but I wish I cried more. I don't, you know, I. You never I think, sobbed? You ever sob? I don't remember really sobbing. But I, I, I honestly feel that I know how I feel. I feel my sense, my 
my emotional content. I have a sense of what I think is good for me. Yes. And uh, so I, I, I don't feel the need to be somebody who's crying all the time or is really crying for things. I uh, Plus you're an English man. There you go. Yeah, you are. Why did you start Urban Squash? Well, it was it's a program that a very dear friend of mine started 25 years ago in Boston and it was called Squash Busters he went to Williams College which is one of the better second tier so they often think of themselves as just under the Ivies it's in in Massachusetts He, he started on Wall Street and decided that he just wanted to give back more and so I got talked into doing it, and we have about 85 kids in the program now. We're se- nice. this is we're finishing our seventh year. It's we spend about four hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year to help these kids. We bus them from schools in the Jane Finch area, and we help them with squash, athletics, mentoring, and education. We have a full-time academic director, and uh, Janice is her name, and. Uh, we're helping these kids try to get through school, and that's the objective: is to get them through high school and on to higher learning. It costs about five grand a year per kid. Costs about five grand a year per kid. And your budget's about three hundred thousand a year. No, it's about four. It's, not, it's now up around four. four. Okay. Yeah. And 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 what do you do to take these kids that far? Well, we bring them to a center in Downsview Park. Uh, they're there generally for two hours. They get a they get an hour of education support we not only have a full-time person but we have kids from york university who come in to also mentor and help these kids and then we have them on the squash court and they're learning the game they're learning athletics and uh it's a program that's fundamentally going it's five days a week and and then weekends they can come as when on weekends we pay for the um, we pay for the transportation. We rent the space from Downsview Park. We also feed them every day because a lot of these kids or most of them are in single family homes. Yes. They're not well nourished. And so we also feed them every day. What do you feed them? Oh, good food. I mean, you know, breads and pastas and salads. And How do you explain squash to them in the beginning? Like, no one knows about squash. Yeah, they don't know it at the beginning, but they now learn it. It's much easier now because they've got friends that are doing this. They've learned about it. And uh, the, the the schools where it's happening, the kids are aware of the programs. And we now get, when we might have room for 20 kids for the next year, we get 150 kids trying out, trying to do it. You've heard from tennis stars that they'll see a certain zen in tennis, you've heard this from hockey players, football players. Is there a spirit? Is there a zen within squash? Can you learn about life from squash? Well, I think that I would say to you that you can learn about life from all athletics, Okay, really. And it, you're learning about competition. You're learning about how to learn, how to get better at these games, um, and, and how you compete and how you play. There's lots of learnings from life, for life, absolutely. The, the ball comes off the wall yeah, sort of slower than a tennis ball would, and it drops. Right. The big thing that's different about these two sports, and there's a lot more similarities and differences, but a tennis ball is a pressurized ball. Okay. And it actually loses its pressure 
the more you play with it. And if you're watching a, pro- a professional match, after seven games, they change the balls, and then every nine games after that, because you beat up that ball and it loses its pressure. In squash, it's the reverse. It's a non-pressurized ball, and as you hit it, it gets warmer, and the inside air pushes out to make it much bouncier. Bouncier. Much bouncier, but you have to get it warm. You never get a tennis ball warm. What, what were you great at in squash? What was your your, your skill? What were, you, what were you known for? I think the biggest thing was I'm, I have been in my life a very tenacious guy. I'd say so. And I often got the recognition that I had the least, I, I got the most out of the least amount of talent. <laughs> so I was, you know, I was relatively athletic, but I was never the fastest. I was never the strongest, but I had a good way of controlling the space and and I was dogged. And one of the things that I always used to say that I liked is something that Pete Rose said about himself. Yes. I'm a tough out. You're a tough out. I'm a tough out. I'm not giving things away. I was tenacious. Are you a gentleman on the court? I wouldn't have been perceived in that way. In your younger years. In my younger years. So give me an example how you were not. Well, I just was dogged. I was tenacious and I wanted to win. And um, there I might have been a little pissy there too. As you were when you were younger. As I was when I was younger. And I, you know, I was much more, not as bad as him, but I was much more of of a McEnroe kind of guy than a Roger Federer gentleman. I was pretty chippy did you ever have a physical fight no oh maybe as a 10 year old as a seven year old but not later but not later so where does your competitive spirit what's the outlet for it nowadays um you know i i I, it's a good question am i the sport that i play the most now is golf okay so and and there i'm still competitive and if things aren't going well as i told you a few minutes ago things can get very dark and very quiet (laughs) i'm not angry i'm not yelling i'm not throwing anything but i'm quiet (laughs) i can sort of see the clouds opening up that's exactly it. what's your best score dark clouds what's your best score my best score ever was 81 which is good right well not really it's not good it's not really good uh, you know a really good golfer is really good is sort of even par i have no more been near that score than fly to the moon okay <laughs> um, but i'm a sort of a 12 handicap and that's not a bad golfer and you enjoy it i really do and you're it's you're really getting fun better are you getting better i'm still getting a little better you are I'm still getting a little better so your hopes for golf i still have hope what would be your hope what are you dreaming of my my biggest dream other than beating the crap out of my children at all times um is is to become a single dat a single digit handicapper so somebody below 10 but that's not easy have you met like professional golfers Yes, I have. I have. And the, um, the I, I had a great experience with a professional golfer. Tell us. It was all related to my son, Dylan. And a friend of mine was a personal trainer in Florida. And uh, he came golfing with us 17 years ago. And um, he saw Dylan hit a golf ball and was so blown away, he asked somebody that he trained and the somebody that he trained was Jack Nicholas. Oh, really? And Dylan and I ended up flying down to Florida. Did you? Met Jack at the Bears Club, his club in Florida, 
We hit balls for half an hour, and he turned to Dylan, and he said, Dylan, why don't you put those clubs in my cart, and let's go play. And we he played, did. You're we, kidding me. We played nine holes with Jack. And to be honest with you, I've forgotten that Dylan was even there. I don't care. I played with Jack. The hell with like? Dylan. What was it like for you? It was fantastic. For, it was just so special. For Dylan? The best. It was so special. Although, he did say something that I've never let him forget. What was that? He said, as we were leaving, I said, you know, Dylan, how was that for you? That was incredible. And I'm telling you, as time goes on, that's going to become even bigger. And he said, yeah, Dad, I loved it, but I'd probably rather, you know, skate around Maple Leaf Gardens with Matt Sundin than play with Jack. He said, you're nuts. This is what he told you? This is what he told you? <laughs> and I'm all, yeah, yeah. But, but, but again, me. you were with Jack. Were, were, was your discussion with his communication, was it a free flow? Were you thinking, oh, this is what I need to tell Jack Nicholas? Did, did, no, it was all about Dylan. Dylan was the one who spent the most time with him. Okay, he was okay. just so gracious to do it. And then from that, I've had a very special relationship develop with with a with his was named the 2018 PGA Lifetime Achievement Award winner in golf journalism. Aye. And he's a man named Lorne Rubenstein. Oh. Lorne used to write for The Globe. He just finished uh, last year, published um, – the book that he wrote with Tiger Woods on winning the, the Masters 20 years, it was the 20th anniversary, I sent Lorne an email, didn't know him from Adam, and told him about what had happened. And he bought it, and he phoned Nicholas, and he phoned Dylan, and he wrote this wonderful column about oh. our day with Jack. Nice. So the next year, I reached out to Lorne, and I said, you know, Lorne, you've never met us, and why don't you come and golf with Dylan and I at the hunt? And uh, he said, I'd love to. So we ended up having a nine-hole game at the hunt and had lunch to follow, and we've become great friends. And seven years ago, I brought my daughter, who's disabled. And he was so blown away by the experience, he wrote another column, and which was published in The Globe. And Lorne and I are still in touch. Uh, we're still great friends, and we play at least once a year and have a meal together and He's a special guy. I love how you live your life. I do. I do because you're generous of spirit. You're giving to your kids. You're giving to people around you. It's a beautiful thing. Well, I think when you leave this earth, like they say in Jewish after 120, if you can lie there and say, hey, you know what? I made this place better. I made people's lives better. There's nothing more you can ask than that. That's my view on it. It's nothing more you can ask. Just a couple of questions before we sign off. It's been yep. a great interview. I'd love this. What are you reading now? Um. I'm just about finished Mo and Me. Okay. And that's from Lauren Rubenstein. And it's a book that he wrote about a, about a guy, Mo Norman was his name, was a Canadian golfing icon, but a very odd man. Uh, won a lot of Canadian championships, but was, and, and considered Tiger Woods say there were two men in all of golf that have owned their swings, Ben Hogan and Mo Norman. And he was very much, I, I sent something to Lauren recently, but he was, he's sort of like a savant. He would repeat things like Dustin Hoffman would. Yes. But he had an, an ability with numbers and remembering things that was insane. And he could hit a golf ball like nobody could hit a golf ball. So I'm just finishing that. What do you think about Bubba? Bubba Watson? Yeah, never took a lesson. Never took a lesson. What's up with Odd that guy? guy. Yeah, well, what I is know. that? I don't know. Odd guy. Have but... you met people like that along the road? Oh, sure. Lots of people don't get lessons. And yeah, things, but become number one. Great. I yeah. mean, you know. Yeah, very unique guy. Uh, how good very can unique. we get? How good can people get? 
how good can this world get? Well, I, I think the world w- continues to get better, in my view. The world will still have lots of dark places and lots of things that aren't perfect. But I think the world has gotten much better than where we were 5,000 years ago. And uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan and believer. And I think that uh, if those who look at the world in an open way, you should be able to see those improvements. There's lots going around that are getting better. Will you give a lot of your money away before you die? I don't know what I'm going to do. I do a lot with Urban Squash now. I contribute a lot to that charity. Um, because of the disabilities of my children, having children, yes. I will. There, that's an important factor for me. But I, I think it's important to give back, both financially and time. And uh, as I said, I feel very blessed about people that I've met, the life that I've lived. I think I mentioned to you one of my greatest experiences with people is the great Justice Rosie Abella. Yes, you told me. And we've become great friends. And I, I just met her. I, I heard, I don't know if I told you this, but I really had never heard of Rosie. Yes. And, and as I've said to people, I could name four or five members of the U.S. Supreme Court, but I really couldn't have named any Canadian for whatever reason. Myself as well. And she gave a speech to the graduating class of Yale Law almost three years ago. I listened to it. Somebody sent it to me, a friend of mine from the Cambridge Club, about a day after. And I thought, oh, my God. I sent that to people and to friends. I know. Four months later, she was having lunch in the Cambridge Club. I didn't even know what she looked like. And I went over to her. Somebody told me she was there, and I went over to her. And this friend started to introduce me. I said, I know who you are. Yes. And I said, firstly, you're a lawyer, and that, that's not a good thing. But I just want <laughs> Is that you what to, you said? Uh, that's what I said. Yeah. And I, and I said, I told her, I said, I listened to your speech to the graduating class of Yale Law. I just want you to know I love you. You are incredible. Mm-hmm. And that began something. And then I had lunch with she and her husband, who wrote a very famous and important book in Canadian history, if not Canadian Jewish history, None is Too Many, with another gentleman, which was quite a remarkable book, and explaining how Jews were not allowed into this country for 32 and 48, kind of an important time for the Jews. Mm, that's Irving Abella who wrote that, yes. Irving Abella, exactly, you, you, you and you one know, other you, guy. You know what's touching about her story? And I think about this often about people. Her father was an accomplished lawyer. Right. And that was taken away from him by the Nazis. Exactly. He was rising up to be a judge, and that was taken away from him by the Nazis. By the Nazis. And he came over here, and he did not practice his law. And think about that for a second, Clive. Oh. Me and you, okay? Well, in this speech... We couldn't she, do what we she, wanted She almost... Life. She doesn't quite, but she, you've really sensed she almost breaks down she saying did. how her father had never seen her become a lawyer. And in that speech, how proud she was <laughs> to be a lawyer her whole life and and how important it is for all of you lawyers at Yale. And I, I love one of the things that she said how proud she was to be gotten a a legal degree. Here she is a Supreme Court justice, but she's just in awe of herself that she's got a legal degree from Yale Law. Yes, yes. And I mean, it was just so precious, but but that her father never saw her become a lawyer, and it was something sad for her. Are you doing okay in life? Are you doing well? I'm trying to be. You you think you're doing okay? Yeah, I still have a pretty positive outlook on life. What would be one of the biggest things you have on your bucket list, the great next objective? 
you know, I, I don't have any major thing that I'm trying to do. I'm trying to continue to live a good life and help people as best I can, help my own family as best I can, and, um, and do good work. Good for you. Thank you for doing this. Avram, it was my pleasure. Uh, Best of luck to you with the you. Uh, hat radio uh, thing that you're doing, and I hope this is a great success for you. You're a special man. All Thank that you. you've done with Fia Hafta has been very special in life, and uh, tried to support the work that you have done as well and i wish you all the best i thank you so much i've enjoyed this interview very much and i was looking forward to it i did my reading on you and uh there's a lot of beautiful stuff that's written so in yiddish we say yeshikoach which means well done uh on your life and uh continue to the beautiful stuff that you're doing it's very inspirational um i want to thank all of our listeners as well uh please if you can pass along the link of the show uh, because we want to get lots of listeners. We believe that if we pass along a positive message, that ultimately it'll just continue on out there, and God knows we need positivity in our world. So do that. And I look forward to being with you again on our next show, and God bless. You've been listening to Hat Radio with Avram Rosenzweig, sponsored by Goodness and Positivity. Hat Radio, the show that schmoozes. Step inside my living room. Share a little talk By roads walked and lessons learned Keeping the flame of faith burning I wanna know where you've been What you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the high